So here's the deal. When I was in Israel, um, there were a few different places in Israel that took on a greater significance for me, largely because they seemed so insignificant. And there were a few of these places for me that, that um, I, I guess the word is, they transcended any one Bible place or Bible story. And I feel like they now reflect more of a walk with God, uh, like, like the journey we're all on. And so they mean more to me now personally than they ever did before. And I want to share that with you. And, and today we're going to talk about the Jordan River. Because for me, I will never forget my experience with the Jordan River. First time I saw the Jordan when I was there, we were on the tour bus, and there were 20 of us pastors on this tour bus. Four had been to the Promised Land before, had been to Israel before, and seen the Jordan. 16 of us had never seen it. And the tour guide in that heavy Hebraic accent says, now if you look to your right when we come over the bridge, the Jordan River is flowing under the bus. And you see 16 pastors, those of us that had never seen it before, quickly, you know, we got our cameras, we're pressed up against, this is our first view of the Jordan River. And the other four that had seen it before are kind of hanging back, enjoying the disappointment they're about to see. Okay? We get up to the river. Plum Creek, you know, in Brunswick, flows through my backyard, essentially. And there are times in the spring <laughs> when the Plum Creek of Brunswick flows mightier than the Jordan River. Okay, this was like a, 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 little, a little creek, you know, a little stream. Now, there are places where it gets a little bit wider. And when it was uh, flowing back in Jesus' day and time and before, it certainly was a little bit stronger but there are plenty of references in ancient literature, including the Bible, that show us that it was by no means the mighty river of ancient days. So I have a picture here. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. What happens is up by Lebanon in central Israel, northern central Israel and what's now the Golan Heights, um, there, there is uh, Mount Hermon, and Mount Hermon melts. And comes down to these waterfalls here, and, and that's the start of the Jordan River. It also has a source at Caesarea Philippi in what was called the Temple of Pan, would flow out and, and make the Jordan River, which flows down to the Sea of Galilee, becomes the water of the Sea of Galilee, then flows down to the Dead Sea. The whole thing's about 170 miles. And while this river is relatively unimpressive, it amazed me, things started to click, how often I knew that there were great moments in Scripture that centered around the Jordan River. So I expected something epic. Then my brain began to wrestle through, what does it mean that God started so many moments in a river that is so insignificant. So what I'd like to do is walk you through some of those moments, and then we're going to see if this is relevant to our life today, and I hope the answer to that is yes. I'm going to start in Genesis 32. I want to read this moment when Jacob, who was one of the fathers of the Israelites, he was the man that God renamed Israel, Jacob has this moment where he encounters God and where he thinks through his journey together with God. 
says, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, Abraham was his grandfather, God of my father Isaac, Yahweh, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. I had only my staff. But now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers of their children and their children. He doesn't have a great relationship with his brother. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. It's a pretty sizable gift package that he's putting together for his brother. And the reason I point that out is because it tells you this is just a gift. So he crossed the Jordan with his walking stick. And now he has all of these possessions as God has prospered them. So for Jacob and the Israelite people, they associate crossing the Jordan as the moment you go from having nothing to having the blessings of God. Reasonable to say from just this one passage, but let's move ahead to the book of Joshua. Joshua, Hebrew name Yeshua. Here's the situation. Moses has wandered in the wilderness leading the Israelites after they were enslaved in Israel or in Egypt for 430 years. They have no identity. They have no land. They're working toward the promised land. And now they're standing at the banks of the Jordan River. Moses transfers leadership to Yeshua, Joshua, who will walk them across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. Before the Jordan River, they own nothing. They're a wandering group of nomads. They have no real identity of their own. But they're about to cross the Jordan River, and Yeshua will lead them at the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Joshua chapter 3. Early in the morning... Joshua and all the Israelites set out for Shittim and went to, the, went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant, essentially seen as the presence and power of God in a box, when you see the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out, from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you've never uh, been this way before, but keep a distance of about a half a mile between you and the ark. Do not go near it. This is a pretty serious little box. It's about yay big. And they got to stay a half a mile away from it. Follow the dot, you know, that's out there. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. 
Now, when they cross through, God is going to part the waters of the Jordan, which I always pictured as this epic parting. Now I see it as, you know, God just kind of piled up a little stream. Um, But when they walked through, they were supposed to pick up 12 big rocks and set up a monument on the other side so that they would always remember and tell their children about the day they crossed the water and into the promised land. So they would associate receiving the blessings of God, receiving their inheritance of the land, with crossing through the water. They set up this memorial or monument to do that. And Yeshua, from the Jordan, took the leadership of the people and led them into the promised land. Fast forward. Elijah, Elijah with a J, was a big deal prophet in Israel. He's walking with his understudy, Elisha, normal prophet understudy, Elisha with an S-H, and Elijah and Elisha crossed the Jordan River. Now, before they crossed the Jordan River, Elisha is an understudy. They crossed the Jordan River, and Elijah prays a blessing on Elisha that he would receive a double portion of all the spiritual blessings that Elijah has. And God does that. And now, after crossing the Jordan, Elisha is the most powerful prophet, probably the most powerful man of God on the planet. (coughs) Later on, there's a king that's warring against everybody and very powerful, and he has one of his officers named Naaman. And Naaman has leprosy, which was a very serious and pretty much untreatable disease in that day. But they hear about this guy named Elisha down in Israel. So the king sends Naaman down to the king of Israel, who panics. Because he doesn't want to get caught up in the mix of this more powerful king. And he tears his robe because he thinks, I am done. I can't do anything for this man. And now I'm going to be at fault for not being able to heal him. And I am up a crick. When Elisha... The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes. He sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to say, go. He didn't even come out. He says, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of Yahweh, his God, wave his hand over the spot, do something, you know, creative, and cure me of my leprosy. That's what David Copperfield would have done. Are not the two rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? In other words, That Jordan River is not very impressive. And this guy didn't even come into the door himself. He's just telling me to go dip in this dinky little pool, this little stream. Couldn't I wash in those other rivers and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? 
So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, and as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. (coughs) Naaman goes away saying, there is one God, and it's the God of the Israelites. God seems, Elisha, God through Elisha seems to tell Naaman, this foreigner of foreign gods, if you want the blessings of the people of God, you go down to the water and that's where you'll receive it. It's not some magical thing. It's not some larger than life display. My people started at the water. They receive their blessing at the water. They receive their identity at the water. Now you, if you want that, you go down to the water also. Fast forward. There's a man named John the Baptist. He's baptizing people, dunking them in those same waters, the waters of the Jordan River probably calling them back to that entrance into the promised land because it always started at the Jordan. Before the Jordan, you're all the magnificence, magnificence that your sinfulness can muster. After the Jordan, you're a follower of God. And so John the Baptist has these enormous crowds coming and he's talking about the kingdom of God and teaching about the kingdom of God. Matthew 3 says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. So John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, getting people ready. And then comes the day on the banks of the Jordan River where leadership transfers again to a man named Yeshua. Yeshua, Joshua, was Jesus' Hebrew name. It was his Aramaic name. It was the name he would have been called growing up. So many years earlier, leadership transferred to Joshua, Yeshua, at the Jordan River, and he led them into the Promised Land. Years later, leadership at the Jordan transferred to Yeshua again, Jesus, and he led us into the Promised Land. And it all starts at the water. A few years later, Jesus was killed on the cross and rose from the grave. And Peter is preaching to thousands of people telling them, you have killed the Messiah. You have killed the leader who led into the promised land, the leader who led us into the kingdom of God. You've crucified him. And the people say, what should we do? Very much like Naaman saying, I'm unclean. I have leprosy. What should I do? Acts 2, Therefore, let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Change your ways and go down to the water. 
every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. Peter tells those Israelites who had just crucified Jesus, but who are ready for forgiveness and a new walk with God, that they need to go the same place that all of the followers of God had gone to start things off. They needed to go to the water and through that enter into God's kingdom. That same Peter says later in the book of 1 Peter, and this water symbolizes baptism or immersion, the dunking, the cleansing, that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, that's the amazing gift that God has given us, the amazing experience that God gives us in baptism. There's a commonality now. It's not about the water. There's nothing spectacular about the Jordan. There's nothing spectacular about our little portable baptistry downstairs in that musty smelling room. It's not about the water. There's a commonality. There's an admission. I was nobody. All I had was this staff until I crossed through the water. And it was that simple act of obedience Jacob was beginning the journey there. The Israelites were walking through obedience into enemy territory there. Naaman was seeking cleansing through humiliation there. That's where it started. Because God wants us to have this commonality. Galatians 3, and I'm going to read to you from a version called The Message. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. So it's faith that brings us to God. But your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original purpose. Everyone who has ever taken a step with God, it's ultimately pointed to what we have in Jesus. And Paul goes on in Galatians 3 to talk about the commonality, not, not slave, not free, not Jew, not Gentile. We are all in this together. And so what I hope you can get out of this is that when it comes to us before God, we are all a bunch of nobodies. We gain our identity through God. And baptism becomes that monument like those 12 stones, that point when we remember I had nothing before this water, and now I have everything. And that's where our journey starts. And it's been that way for all the people of God. So, if you have never been immersed in the water, I want to challenge you to think about the experience that you're missing. Because there is a common connection that we all have. We all started with nothing. We're all unworthy. God has washed anyone who stands before him pure. And he wants for there to be a common experience that we're all in this together with the Israelites, with people before the time of Jesus, 
and people after time of Jesus were all the same before the water. We're all the same after the water when God gives us our identity. Now, if you have been immersed, since Israel, my baptism means more to me because I can now put myself standing there on the banks of the Jordan River, standing before the water of baptism, where centuries and centuries of followers of God have started off. And I have that common experience now. Just like all those who've gone before me, I went through the water to begin my journey with God because your journey with God begins at baptism, begins at the water. And so now as I live daily, I have to remind myself that I am on that journey, that same journey that we see through the lives of those in Scripture I am on that journey as well. And I have to live each day as though I am on this pilgrimage toward my promised land when I get home one day with God forever. Let's pray.